0: Welcome back, Siege of New Hampshire listeners. While we're taking a little breather between Books 3 and 4, I thought we could take a look at something that might be a feature of a grid down world the use of horses. A regular feature of my siege stories is how people adapted to the loss of modern conveniences. One of those conveniences is transportation. I showed a few glimpses of horses being used in lieu of gas powered vehicles. The people of New Hampshire were improvising around the fact that fuel was scarce and a finite commodity. If we did have an event of some kind that seriously disrupted the availability of fossil fuels, gasoline, diesel, things would really be tough for almost everyone. So much of our modern life depends on transportation. We have gasoline for our cars so we can drive to work and the store. Diesel fuel for the delivery trucks to bring the food to the store. Maybe more importantly, there's diesel to run the tractors that plow, plant, and harvest that food so there'll be something to put on the trucks to ship to the store. A modern farm, with all its equipment, uses a lot of fuel. If things went sideways, as some people say it, and fossil fuels became scarce, could our modern farming system continue to produce all the food we're accustomed to? Probably not. It's commonly said that a widespread grid failure would throw us back to the 1800s. That wouldn't be entirely true. We'd still have solar panels, LED flashlights, two-way radios. But for farming and for food production, it kind of would be the 1800s. Gardening nowadays isn't all that different from gardening in the 1800s. Even without machines, people can tend a pretty large garden, maybe enough to feed themselves. To raise extra food, however, above and beyond what the farm family needs, requires more than people power. Farming before there were tractors relied on animal power. What would it be like farming with horses instead of tractors like they did in the 1800s? Could people nowadays actually farm with horses like they did 200 years ago? To help answer questions like that, I have a special guest with me today, Jonathan a man who does farm with horses. We spoke via a Zoom call, so I apologize in advance for the sound being a little mm, harsh at times. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining me and sharing some of your experience.
1: Well, it's it's nice to finally meet you, Mick.
0: As I mentioned in the intro, I have included in my story some bits of people using horses. Where I live, there are a lot of saddle horses around. It's hard to imagine people not trying to take advantage of that resource if the grid were down. But what would that actually be like? But before we get into my many questions, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your farm? Okay.
1: So we have, uh, currently we live on 100 acres, and we have eight draft horses, which is a pretty good amount. Some of them are, are aging out, they're older, and they have lameness issues. And others are new to us within a, a couple of months. We use primarily mow hay and all that entailed with that. So we cut and rake. We, of course, don't bale because uh, horses don't have a power takeoff on them. They're on the baler. We're in a spring. We'll plow and disc for our large garden. We've been working on growing grain, uh, primarily oats. We've done wheat and barley in the past. We're having a hard time with that because we're in a new location. The, the elk are... Are a little zealous to get to our grain crop. And in the wintertime, we spend a lot of time spreading manure, which works out pretty well with the increased fertilizer costs. We can't afford commercial fertilizer anymore. And there's always something to do with them, whether we're, we're working on the farm or
0: just training them. Thanks. Eight horses, huh? You were describing mowing hay and spreading manure. Uh, obviously, it takes more than just horses. If we imagined that there was some sort of collapse and a guy, let's take my neighbor across the road, he's got a little tractor. He mostly uses the bucket on the front for earth-moving projects, but his wife also has a horse. If my neighbor wanted to start up a little farm to grow the food that wasn't coming from far away anymore, what is he going to use for equipment? He can't use any of the implements his tractor could pull. Even a couple of big draft horses aren't going to pull a big six-bottom plow. He's going to need a smaller plow, a disc, a hay rake, etc. What is my aspiring farmer neighbor going to do about horse-sized equipment?
1: Right. Well, surprisingly, it's, it's relatively easy to find equipment that is suitable for a, a horse work. There's a lot of yard art in the country that generally uses, just needs to have the wood replaced and some work done on it. You have to always know what you're looking for. There's a certain knowledge base you need, but it, it's available. And, and yeah, you, you are limited in what you can do, especially if you're looking at like the saddle horse size. They can't obviously pull as much as a, a team of horses that weigh 2,000 pounds each. And it would be a challenge, but I don't think it'd be insurmountable. I've come across a lot of equipment and it's just sitting in barns and, and, you know, people's homes and of course, yard sales, I always thought in a post-apocalyptic world, if I were looking, I'd head for the nearest historical society or museum because there's always you know, a, a large quantity of old equipment, whether it's horse-drawn or hand-powered, and usually it's in very good condition. There's a part of me that's always kind of jealous that there's such nice equipment there that you don't ever get to use because it's behind a, a display case or a roped-off area.
0: It's kind of funny you mentioned yard art. I see a fair amount of that around here. An old disc, a hay rake, a harrow. People have them out in their front yards decorated with mums or pumpkins, etc. The ones with wooden parts, well, the wood looks really fragile now. All of the iron ones, like the disc and the hay rake, they look really rusty. Do you think even those old rusty implements could be salvaged?
1: Most likely, yeah. Specifically like plows, yeah, There's just wood handles for the most part. Some of the old plows have a wood beam, which is usually in poor shape if it's been outside, but a steel beam plow is pretty resilient so long as it hasn't been pulled behind a tractor far too often. You know, When people started using tractors, they would just take a horse-drawn implement and hook it behind a the tractor. They would cut the long tongue off of a hay mower or a hay rake and run it behind the the tractor. And the problem is obviously tractors travel at a different, a higher speed than horses. So they can create damage. And sometimes with a plow, it'll spring the beam, which means it's bent the beam. And that's, that's pretty much a fatal error or fatal injury to the plow, but it's not typically, it's not very common. And if you know what you're looking for, but I've, I've got a handful of plows I've collected over the years. And all I've had to do is, put new handles on it and polish up the mold board and you're good to go. And the same with it, most any walk behind horse implement, they have plows, there's harrows, there's cultivators, and those are pretty common. And they would be definitely be suitable for a smaller horse. Either as a single, well, most of them, most of them are single horse implements say for the plow. And it's, it's, it's always exciting just to be able to take something like that and make it
0: usable. Well, that's encouraging. But let's say someone did find a single bottom plow and got it all fixed up, and then he's got his wife's horse. And it's still gonna be a whole lot less powerful than a tractor pulling a six bottom plow. It's gotta go slower. Since you plow with your horses, how long does that take? Well,
1: there's a lot of conditions that determine you know, how much work it is, you know, the terrain of the ground, whether it's been plowed before and sod is, is incredibly difficult to work up. And in a post-apocalyptic world, I imagine most people would be plowing up lawns and whatnot. So it'd take a, a lot of work. The old timers always said that you can plow an, an acre a day with horses with a 12 inch wide moldboard plow. And if you're mowing with horses, it was 10 acres a day. So an acre isn't much for you know, commercial farming, but for a family, it's not too, too bad. But it's, re- it's work regardless. And a team of horses is usually what's required for like a 12-inch wide plow. But there's a lot of smaller plows out there in the 8-inch eight, eight range and 10-inch. And those, those are suitable for a smaller team or a single horse.
0: You were talking about plowing sod fields that had never been plowed or people's yards. Where I live used to be more actively farmed. There are some fields that have gone back to being just wild meadow. There are some houses that have some pretty big yards. People would be trying to plow up that unused land so that they could grow food. Would people use a different kind of plow or a different process to start a crop field in some place that had never been plowed in decades, if ever?
1: Yeah, when I first try to break ground with uh, with horses, I'll run a disc over it as many times as I can because a disc will gradually dig in deeper. So if you can get a disc to to go in two, three inches, or even deeper before you plow it, it helps to break up that that layer of sod just enough, and it does help. Uh, but it just it would be back breaking work, and I I would not look forward to that. I mean, for us. The reality is, we'll end up using a tiller when we're actually trying to to do it. We'll plow it and disc it, and if I can borrow a neighbor's tractor tiller, I'll work it down. But post-apocalyptic, I would I would disc it if I had a disc and plow it, and then you would just have to go over it multiple times with a disc. Or you know, if depending the time of year, if a person could plow it in the fall and let it sit until the spring, and then you're Your weather, the frost, and freeze, and thaw and action would help break up that sod.
0: So, if we were thrown back into the 1800s, there'd be a lot of hard work to do. Breaking sod to make some new fields? Definitely. With all that work the horses are doing, what are they eating? I mean, a tractor runs on gas or diesel, but horses have to eat. When I'm at tractor supply, I see fifty-pound bags of horse feed or bales of alfalfa. What do you feed your horses?
1: Yeah, with draft horses, they're you know they're they're built different, and they do not do well on a high grain diet. Our draft horses are basically hundred percent just grass hay fed. They don't get any grain. They don't get any supplements or anything fancy. We like we like to give them oats as a treat or when they're working hard, but we haven't given them oats for quite a while, like most animals, I think these days people tend to spoil them more than they need and you know post apocalyptic you wouldn't have that luxury i mean right now it's it's hard just because of the increased prices of feed to maintain a nice you know lifestyle for the for the animals and honestly you know you look at just look at history. Horses survive for millennia on grass or worse, you know, scrub ground. I mean, I've seen horses that live in timber that are kind of left to fend for themselves. They're not neglected. They always are fed, but they'll come out of the trees after eating, you know, who knows what. And they're fat. They're doing great. And, it, and people would, some people would look at that and think they're being neglected. One of the things that around horses, our philosophy is horses are meant to be horses. So you need to let them have the ground, the Roman, to do what they you know behave and, and just interact as, as they're meant to be. Keeping them in a small stall or a paddock isn't, isn't good for their physical or mental health.
0: I imagine the many saddle horses around here are probably getting that more pampered diet that you're talking about
1: i would assume so in our part of the world we call them pasture ponies or pasture pets you know they're they're a luxury people love on them and and spoil them and, and hardly i mean i'm not judging them and saying it's wrong or right it's just kind of the reality they're a luxury item and even our horses aren't worked to their capacity you know they're they're a luxury they do get work but they don't get worked nearly as much as they could you know they're they're not ever overexerted. In a post-apocalyptic world, that would definitely be a different scenario.
0: Definitely. Post-event, everyone, including the horses, will be working to capacity. Without fossil fuels and electricity, I mean, almost everything is gonna be more work. Muscle power becomes something you're careful not to waste. I was reading about farmers back in the day being reluctant to hitch up their team to a wagon for a trip to town because it would basically use up those horses for the day. If you've only got a fixed amount of horse days of work, yeah, you sure don't want to waste them. Sure. Again, thinking of life after some collapse, people with horses now have them as a luxury, as you said. Right now, there's a supply chain to support that luxury. But once, you know, the supply chain dries up, they aren't gonna be able to drive into tractor supply and pick up bags of horse chow, or alfalfa pellets, how well do you think these saddle horses would be able to adapt to a working horse's diet of just grass and hay?
1: It would depend, I think, mostly on their, their disposition and their attitude. Like any animal, you know, disposition and how they, just how they are mentally kind of determines their fate. Draft horses are, are usually mellow. They're, they're considered like a cold-blooded horse, they don't generally get as excited. I mean, you, you probably have seen the, the, the horses out in their paddocks running around and, and just acting pretty wild and crazy and, and they're flighty, you know, a horse, a horse that doesn't have the attitude may not adapt well to a, a work in harness or, or a lifestyle of work in general. If you don't have an experience to train them, that would be a pretty big hurdle to, to overcome. But then just like any animal or any person, you know, a a horse with the right attitude would potentially thrive in that if they have a work ethic and horses do have work ethics and and the adaptability to that lifestyle, I think they would be fine and it might be a relatively easy transition.
0: I've known some people who talked about how their horses were mellow and always seemed happy. Yet I also know a woman whose horse was moody, flighty and capricious. She named her Diva, a name she lived up to. So, yeah, horse personalities will vary. Assuming you've got a mellow horse that's somewhat teachable and not too diva like, what would be involved in training a saddle horse to pull? People who aren't professional trainers are going to be trying to train their horses. How would these non professionals start training a horse to pull?
1: Well, that's a very complex question with a lot of different avenues of approach. In a perfect world, You would start out first with someone who knew what they were doing and a horse that knew what it was doing. What we like to do when we're starting like a young horse is to pair it up with an experienced horse and hopefully a larger, you know, physically larger experienced horse. And the, the older stable horse will teach the younger one quite a bit. And if it's bigger, it has the physical ability to kind of actually hold that other horse in place. So you don't have a... A wreck or any kind of accident. If you're just starting out, like a single horse by itself that's never worked in harness, again, hopefully the person or people involved have experience because a lot can go wrong fast. And you know, being safe, especially in a in a world without power or whatever, medical help isn't going to be available, so or readily available. So you'd have to be very careful. But first you, you'd have to, and assuming, say they are saddle horses, so they have the ability to, you know, they're rideable and they know some stuff about forward movement and whatnot, it'd be more of a matter of putting their bridle on and rigging up some sort of longer line. You know, when you're riding a horse, a saddle horse, the, the connection from the bit to the person is called the, a rein. The, the term for driving horses is it's a, a line and it, you know, it's long enough to go back behind the horse. And so if it were me, I would have someone in front of the horse with a halter and a rope leading it and someone in the back with these lines uh, driving the horse. They call that ground driving. So you would get the horse used to moving forward with bit pressure and voice commands from the person behind, but the person in front would be leading and helping, just helping the horse move forward. So you have the driver behind who would, say, give a verbal command For us, we say step up, some people say get up or whatnot, Uh, but we would say, I would say step up. And if I had a helper, they would be on with the lead rope and they would help lead the horse forward just enough to get them moving forward. And as the horse is walking ahead, I would be behind walking, eventually steering the horse with the bit. And then I would say, whoa. And if the horse has an issue with that, the person on the lead line would help hold the horse. And you would just kind of work from that way up. You do that for a, a period of time. You know, we usually do a ground driving for an hour or so. Some the horse will tell you when they're ready. You know, if you're having a, a an issue, you work through that. You get to where you're communicating well, and you stop for the day and come back a day later. You do it over again, starting and stopping and turning. Once that's feeling good and you have a good confirmation then it would be time to introduce some sort of a harness assembly. Hopefully people would find harness in a barn or maybe they already have it. Or I think, I think harness itself, there's a lot to it, but I don't believe it would be that difficult to create or build with materials on hand and harness is a whole nother kind of topic of discussion, but If you can get a horse to ground drive with basically just bit pressure and voice commands moving forward, that's a big part of it, you know, getting them used to it and then introducing the load that they'd have to be able to pull that load. We'll start out with just ground driving with getting them used to their harness. Then we'll hook on the, usually just a tire, like an old truck tire, just for a little bit of weight, a little bit of resistance, You do that for a period of time, and sometimes it might take a day or two. Sometimes it might take a week. You do that, and then you kind of just progress gradually. I mean, of course, if you have the kind of the uh, fear or the desperation of needing to get something done, that can complicate things because it's not a process you can rush and rush with and have good results.
0: I imagine that horses, like most animals, really do pick up on the mood of the people around them. If you're desperate and anxious, they're going to be too. Herd instinct, perhaps. So you'd need to stay attuned to their mood. I could see where pushing too hard could actually ruin what training progress you've made.
1: Definitely, yes.
0: So realistically, saddle horses could be trained to pull a plow or a wagon, but it would take time and a lot of patience.
1: Definitely, yeah.
0: Assuming you've got your horse trained to pull, and you've found and refurbished a suitable single-bottom plow, how much work are we looking at to plow a new field? While I'm asking that, I'm thinking of a restaurant out here called The Common Man that has as their logo a man pushing a plow. No horse, just the farmer pushing a plow, and it looks like he's pushing really hard. I gather it's the horses that are doing the real work, but what are you doing when you're plowing with your horses? How much work is it for you?
1: Yeah. You're not just along for the ride. I mean, you are a part of the team, whether it's you and one horse or you and multiple horses, you need to be not only an active participant, but you have to be the leader. You don't ever want the horse to be leading you and telling you what they're doing. Cause that generally ends poorly. For me, I make the joke that everything's fun for, you know, three, four hours. And then, then it turns into work. So you have the work of, of, of grooming the horse and getting it tacked up, whether you're going to go riding or, or setting up the harness and rigging that, you know, grooming them, picking their feet, checking them over, making sure there's you know nothing, no injuries that you need to address or, or, in, or issues with their shoulders that might uh, sore them up from the work and you hook up to your load or whatever you're going to do. You hitch up to your, say, say your manure spreader or your plow. And from then I when I'm driving you basically the only you communicate with the animal via the lines or your voice and I I do both I talk to the horses cuz I don't like just pulling on their mouth to tell them what to do I'll tell them to to stop or to start or to turn right and left we say step up to, to go and we say whoa to stop and g is right and haw is left those are kind of universal commands like don't ask me where they come from but that's just kind of how it is but while i'm working them um, you'll see videos and it always looks great when it just seems like the, the person is just sitting on the seat or you know, and relax and, and that's always a nice look but you have to realize those horses are are actively working they're they're working the load, they're moving forward, and depending on the, the horse, they may be pulling harder than you want them to. They may be trying to go faster than you want them to. Plowing can be a very hard job. So the horse is pulling that load, just like if you were carrying a load on a backpack that was 50 pounds, you'd be straining against it. So some horses will carry that load smoothly and, and some will be pulling harder than you'd like. So you have to actively be slowing them down and, and pulling back on those lines. And depending on the animal, that can be a fair amount of work. I mean, it it can tire a person out and you have to, I guess, stay engaged. You're not just grabbing onto those lines and holding them steady with what we call dead hands. When I have lines in my hands, I'm continually working my fingers, kind of massaging those lines, which in turn kind of massages that bit to keep it moving in their mouth. I mean, if you just are holding on to those lines, have that firm pressure on the bit in their mouth, that'll can soar their mouth. it can kind of numb it. They call it a dead mouth where, you know, you have so much pressure on their lines. It kind of turns into this cycle where you have to have more pressure to get a reaction from that animal because they're used to the constant pressure. So you're actively doing something, even when you're just riding along in a wagon, you're always kind of working those lines and steering them. You don't just kind of want to let them wander around because again, you want to be the leader of this team. And sometimes it does turn into a fair amount of work. And of course, sometimes you're just sitting there and, and they're kind of on autopilot mowing. Hey, you're going around and around in a circle and a good team kind of knows what they're doing for us. We'll mow usually depending on the size of the size of the field. We'll make a round and we stop to give them a break to catch their breath and cool down. You do that for a couple of times and they know when they're going to stop. And so, you can kind of get away with just kind of sitting back and enjoying the scenery and and paying attention to the mower and whatnot but you always kind of have to be aware of what's going on in your surroundings because things can go sideways in a hurry
0: you mentioned about the horses knowing who's boss in the training is there some advantage in the horse's original owner doing the training i mean they've already got a relationship with the horse as opposed to that of a total stranger
1: well, yes and no. I mean, it, that's providing the the owner has a good relationship with the horse.
0: Well, yeah, if the Otherwise, horse him, then no, I'd say not.
1: Yeah, I mean, horses. You know, you look at like kids. You know, your children will behave differently with other people than they do with their parents. And so i've I've come up with come to horses that the owners are having problems with, and I don't have those problems because I have the boundaries. And I, you know, and dominance is kind of a, such a negative word today, but it is true. I mean, in a herd, you have to be dominant and it doesn't mean you physically beat on the animal to assert that it can just be, you know, staring them in the eye and and letting them know that, Hey, you know, I'm the one in charge and and you're going to listen to me and you're not going to push into me. So if they have a good relationship, yeah. If the horse trusts the person, Yeah, I mean, I can't go up to a new horse and just, and I won't go up to a new animal and just, you know, start handling them and and telling them what to do. I like to spend a little bit of time and just get them to know the horse and the horse gets to know me and, you know, know our personalities. And then we go out and do something.
0: Makes sense. You mentioned earlier about starting your day with the horses by brushing them and checking them over, looking for any sores that the harness might irritate. You also said you picked their feet. I gather your horses aren't shoed? Uh... You're looking for embedded rocks or something in the hoof.
1: Yeah, Uh, even if they aren't aren't if they if they have shoes or don't, they can still get stuff packed up in them. And in in fact, it seems like if they have shoes on them, they're more likely to get stuff kind of packed up in those shoes. But you know, for us, because we live in a wet climate, we have a lot of gravel around, and so there's rocks, and and so yeah, you you occasionally get a rock that's stuck up in their hoof, and eventually it can cause an abscess, which is basically a a bruise and you don't want that because you know if the horse is sore it's not going to be comfortable and it's not going to work so as a practice yeah when i get them out to work them before we go do something i'll pick their feet which basically you pick their foot up and they have a thing which is called a hoof pick which is kind of like a screwdriver bent at a 90 degree angle and you just scrape out the dirt manure and whatever might be packed up in there and clean it out and make sure there's nothing in there that's going to cause a problem
0: then at the end of the workday, it's kind of the same. When I'm done for the day using my little tractor, I just back it into the shed and close the door. With horses, I'm imagining there's going to be more to it. What would that be typically?
1: Uh, typically, we come back to the barn and we put them on the rail, and we'll we'll let them stand there and cool down, or just just hang out. I've I've seen a lot of people run into problems, and I've I've had horses that when they, they've come to me as soon as they get to the barn, they're antsy, they're pacing, they're kind of pawing and they want to, they want to go out and and relax. They want to get turned out, be done with work. And I don't, as a rule, ever just unharness them and kick them out. Even though I want to go to the house and get a drink or, or have lunch, you know, I want to be done working too. But part of their training is you come back to the barn. We hang out for a while I take their harness off. If in the wintertime or when it's cooler, they'll usually be a little sweaty under the collar and we'll kind of brush that, take a towel and rub them down. And if it's in the summer, like after mowing, they're pretty sweaty. They'll be dripping with sweat. And so we have, we currently have the luxury of running water. So we give them baths and take a hose and hose them down and wash the sweat and the dirt off of them and cool them down and dry them off a little bit, but generally like to make sure they're kind of clean and there's no sweat sticking to them and then we'll, we'll let them go and they'll, you know, go out in the field and get a drink and roll in the grass and get to be a horse for the rest of the time. They're not working.
0: This cool down and brushing is another inspection, I guess, just to see if there's any new rubs or sores. Right. They could have developed some issues while they were out there working.
1: Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, the harness will rub them, the the rigging will rub on them. I always... I'm disappointed in myself if something like that happens because I didn't catch it in time. But you know, they'll get a raw spot, or the hide'll get rubbed off, or maybe they, or they get a bee sting. And It's always exciting when you're out in the field and you, you get a hornet's nest, and they have some stings. So you take that time to to put salve on or doctor anything, or or you know, in the summertime, flies are a problem. So we'll you know we use fly spray to help help uh, <laughs> keep the flies off of them. And the fair horses, my wife likes to put sunscreen on their noses.
0: (laughs) Hadn't thought about a sunburned horse.
1: Yeah. But it's important to keep them healthy. I mean, just like your tractor, you know, you need to check the oil, clean the air cleaner out, make sure there's fuel in it. You know, if you you don't do that, it's going to come back and haunt you at some point.
0: I know this is a bit of a tangent, but you were talking about rubbing them down. Is there a spot they like to be rubbed? Kind of like a dog likes to have his belly rubbed?
1: Oh, yeah. It's kind of cute. Yeah, just like a dog. I, a lot of the horses, like sometimes on their chest, like right between their front shoulders or their chest area, they like it. Most of our horses really like their bellies being rubbed, you know, and the mares kind of down around their udder. They get, you know, the flies get on them and they get fly bites down there. They can't swish them off with their tails. And so we have a few horses that you start scratching their bellies or around their udder and they'll, they'll kind of lift their leg up or hike, cock their hip, just like a kind of a dog would it's it's yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. They, they appreciate it. And, (laughs) but like I said earlier, they kind of, they remind me a lot of just the big dog. I don't know if it's true or not, but somewhere I was told that or read that like the the Lakota, the Plains Indians word for, for horse was translated the big dog as a as another tangent
0: (laughs) this sounds like that part of the relationship between farmer and horse it's much more personal i have to admit i've never once thought about giving my tractor a scratch behind its headlights or something these little treat scratches are part of building that relationship
1: well exactly i mean you'll see horses out in the pasture scratching on each other's withers you know they bond there's a lot of there's a lot of physical connection and I think it's an important part. I mean, you, you are a part of that herd.
0: Well, I don't want to take up your whole morning. I appreciate you taking the time to share some of your experiences with us. It sounds like, if I might summarize, if things did get thrown back to the 1800s, people could train saddle horses to plow and rake and other farm work. It wouldn't be quick or easy, but it could be done and that horse-scale equipment is still out there, though it would take some more work to be made serviceable. It's doable, even if a bit of a lost art nowadays. If we did have some long-term disruption, some kind of workhorses just might come back.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're right. I mean, that's one of the things I liked about your books, is one of the first series I, I've come across that had, had horses in it. And you did a, a very good job, in my opinion, of kind of describing just, just the interaction and the the creation and adaptation of stuff to make it usable.
0: Well, thanks.
1: And there's so much lost knowledge out there that would become important to people in a, in a world after some kind of a collapse and historically saddle sized horses were a a large part of the draft work. I mean, the larger horses to an extent were kind of a luxury. I mean, it's just like, like anybody, you know, you You may, I don't know what you have, but your tractor isn't probably a 150 horsepower John Deere and you couldn't afford it if you wanted it. So you have a smaller tractor. And so those larger horses were for larger farms. And if you look at the pictures of black and white pictures, a lot of them were smaller horses. It would just take, take time and patience. And, and something I kind of struggle with every, not every day, but I I have to remind myself when I am plowing sod and it looks like crap and it's just not a perfect seed bed is. You have to think about what it was like when that stuff was new and the pioneers were breaking the sod and they were plowing around stumps because they just cleared the timberlands. It's not going to be, you know, a postcard picture. We have to adjust our perspective and our kind of our goals and our our attitude towards what we're trying to accomplish.
0: Very true. Post-apocalypse, you'd have to get used to things not being quite as pretty as they used to be. Yeah. I do appreciate you taking time out from your busy farm day. Thanks for your many answers.
1: No, well, you're welcome. I, I hope I was helpful and, and relatively or moderately clear in my responses and didn't, didn't ramble on too much.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. While we were offline, Jonathan shared a couple of websites that he found helpful in his horse training. I'll post links for those in the show notes on Podbean Well, that's about it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did and maybe came away a little more hopeful that being thrown back into the 1800s need not be all sackcloth and ashes. Next week, we start into book four, Susan's Bridge. I hope you can join me for that. I also want to give a shout out to my members on Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon. I do appreciate your help in making this podcast possible. If you're liking what you hear, consider becoming a member too.